0: Welcome to Talk is Jericho. It's the pod of thunder and rock and roll. And drum roll, please. It's the Duff McKagan joke of the week. Chris Jericho, this is Duff McKagan calling you from Austin, Texas. I, uh, I lost 20% of my couch yesterday. Ouch. Thank you very
1: much.
0: Uh, <laughs> uh, Duffy, Duffy, Duffy. Uh, how can you not laugh at that? So ridiculously stupid. Uh, you have to laugh five letters in the word couch. Ouch. Come on, man. Lose 20% of letters of the word and at least with ouch. Get it? Lost 20% of my couch? Yeah, you get it. Rock and roll. Hall of Famer, uh, Duff McKagan, delivering the goods every single Friday. He and Guns N' Roses are delivering the goods tonight, Friday, October 18th in Guadalajara, Mexico. Uh, the Guns N' Roses tour is doing two dates south of the border come, uh, before they come back to the states for a show in Oklahoma City on Wednesday. Still rocking and doing the uh, "Not in This Lifetime" tour. You got to see it. Playing lots of great stuff. Get your tickets at GunsN'Roses.com. And another rock and roll hall of famer also out playing shows live. It's the Artemis Pile Live and Loud band. They're honoring the music of Ronnie Van Zant, Leonard Skinner tonight in St. Charles, Illinois. They're going to be on the Rock Legends Cruise 8 in February as well. Get your tickets at ArtemisPyle.com. That's A-R-T-I-M-U-S-P-Y-L-E band.com. And for those of you who don't know, Artemis was in Leonard Skinner with Ronnie Van Zant. He replaced the original drummer Bob Burns back in 1974 after Bob left the band to health problems. And Artemis is sharing that story with us right here in Talk is Jericho. Uh, the first time he met Ronnie Van Zant, what his audition to join the band was like but here's the crazy thing. Artemis also survived the horrific plane crash that killed Ronnie Van Zant, Guitar player Steve Gaines, backup singer Cassie Gaines, the band's tour uh, assistant Dean uh the plane's pilots. That was on October 20th, 1977 almost 42 years ago to the day, and Artemis is sharing details about the circumstances leading up to the tragic crash, the events that followed. Artemis said it's a miracle anyone survived the plane crash, and you'll hear why he was not at all surprised that Ronnie Van Zant did not. So on the 42nd anniversary of the crash that uh, almost ended one of the biggest rock and roll bands in history at the height of their popularity, uh, we're paying tribute to the survivors and the legacy of Leonard Skinner. We're Leonard Skinner drummer, Artemis Pyle, right now on Talk is Jericho. Okay, so um, a couple months ago, I was asked to play at a benefit show, organized uh, in some ways by Artemis Pyle. One of the greatest names, by the way, Artemis. <laughs> That's an old school, like Southern name, or where does that
1: come from? No, um, my real name is Thomas. Oh, OK and my mother called me Tommy uh-huh. and my middle name is Delmer, Tommy Del Pyle, you know, but when I was in college, we were taking a course in Greek mythology. I was going to Tennessee tech university. Right. And, um, you know, I, I was an idiot in school. I didn't try it and study, you know, I didn't crack a book. Uh, all I wanted to do was drive a car or ride my bicycle or play drums. So, You know, I didn't pay very good attention, but I think my grandfather bought my way into college. So I was at Tennessee Tech University in Cookville, Tennessee, and there was a Greek mythology and there was a a character named Artemis, but it was a girl's name. It was like the the goddess of virginity or something like that. She was the sister of Apollo. So everybody had nicknames from Nashville, the Flash, Snake, Woody. (laughs) You know, all these guys, everybody had these cool nicknames. So I didn't have a nickname, didn't want one. And all of a sudden they dubbed me Artemis because I guess when I was 18, 19 years old, I had a baby face. Mm -hmm. Not so much now, but Mm -hmm. I, I, you know, I looked young and with no facial hair or anything. I I guess, you know, I looked like a a virgin. So they started calling me Artemis, A-R-T-I-M-U-S. And... I hated it because it's like being the boy named Sue. (laughs) Right. How do you do? But then a program came out on television. You're too young to know this, but it was called The Wild Wild West. And it was James West. And he had a a sidekick named Artemis Gordon. Mm. And it was A-R-T-I-M-U-S. And the girl spelling is different. So I thought, oh, my God, it's great because now it's a guy. You know, and I'm no longer the boy named Sue. So that name stuck, and it's on all my Skinnerd albums. You know, mm-hmm. it's on all my albums, period. It just became my name. But when I was in the Marines, I went in the Marines in 1967, because I, I had basically flunked out of college at Tennessee Tech. So I came home and joined the Marines. And my dad was a Marine. Mm-hmm. His father was a Marine. My uncle's a Marine. His dad was a Marine. So they didn't want me to join the Marines. And so actually I went down and joined the Navy because my dad wanted me to fly. So the Navy had a really good flight program. So I got down there and I'm in the office and I'm looking at the guy and he reads my paper and he goes, okay. He said, um, you should probably join the Marines with a name like Gomer Pyle. He made a joke, you know, cause Gomer had just left the Andy Griffith show and started the Gomer Pyle USMC. So when they saw my name tag, come here, Gomer. So I had to go up in front of like a lot of men that were getting ready to go to Vietnam and we'd be at Chow and there'd be 400 Marines standing there and the DI would go pile and I'd have to break ranks, run out, sir, golly, shazam, surprise, surprise, surprise. Hey, Sarge, the four things that Gomer always said that he got in trouble for. And so I'd have to say it country and loud as I could. Really? Yeah. At the top of my lungs. And so I got to where they make me do it over and over again. So finally I got to where, man, when they asked me to do it, I did it with all my might to get them off my back. And so, you know, I got to where I was screaming, shazam. But there's all these guys, these Marines, and they're laughing. They're falling out. They're falling on the ground. They're rolling, you know. But I figure if some guy went to Vietnam, gave his life for this country, and had a belly laugh at my expense, mm-hmm. no problem. So, I you know, I went in, I said, uh, I want to join the Navy and the flight program. And the guy goes, with a name like Gomer, you should join the Marines. And I basically said, F you. And I walked across the, the hall, walked into the Marine Corps recruiting office and joined the Marines. So I called my dad after I was through, and I said, Dad... I'm all joined up. I'm hitched up now. And he goes, great. You know, uh, where are you going to go to boot camp? And I said, well, I've chosen San Diego. He goes, that's a Marine Corps boot camp. And I said, Dad, I joined the Marines. And he went, he uh, he, w- he, was proud of me mm-hmm. for doing that. And mom and dad and my sister flew out to to San Diego and watched me you know, graduate, which was a big deal because they didn't have much money. I mean, my dad was an architect and a builder, but we weren't rich. So, you know, for them all to fly out there to see me graduate, I knew it meant a lot to dad.
0: Mm-hmm. So, so you're talking about these early days of being in, in, in the Marines and flying all these things. How did you end up making the transition then from being a serviceman into being the drummer of one of the biggest rock and roll bands of all time? So, how did I go
1: from being a brain surgeon to a shepherd? <laughs> <laughs> Uh, well, as I say, I was about to solo in flight school and I was taking lessons from an old Sergeant major and my dad had already soloed and he was the flyer. He was a pilot. My dad was yeah. a pilot and he was out in, uh, Albuquerque, New Mexico. And he was looking at a piece of property that he worked for a man named Burke Shaw, And he was the money man Burke. And he sent dad out to Albuquerque to look at a piece of property they were going to build on. So my dad was the guy that would wade in there up knee deep in mud and build 400 homes on a property site. He always liked to fly over the property site to see his geographical lay of the land, where he'd put his storm drains, where he'd place the houses. And he liked to do that from the air. And he was with a man named Robert Stubblefield who had 36,000 hours of flying time. He was an aviation pioneer of the Southwest. So he was with my dad. They were hit from above and behind by a B-57 weather recon bomber. And it was making touch and goes at Kirkland Sunport Air Force Base to the right. Dad was on final approach in a Cessna 150, a brand new one. And he was gonna land straight ahead at Coronado. The right wing down uh, position of the bomber cut my dad's plane completely in half. Oh my gosh. Dad never knew what hit him. Hmm. one second. He's doing two things. He loved, he's flying an airplane and he's flying over property. He was going to build on and he was about to hit it big. Hmm. The guy Burke was a big millionaire and, and he knew that dad was the man with the plan. And so both men were killed. Hmm. Mr. Stubblefield and my father and, um, The dream was I was going to be a Marine captain, go to flight school, fly for the Marines. And then dad was killed. And I kind of just, you know, I I was a drummer. From when the doctor pulled me out and slapped me on my butt, you know, I went two, three, four. I'm a real drummer. (laughs) I'm I'm a natural drummer. Mm -hmm. And I rode horses all my life. I ride like a Native American. I don't use a saddle. I use a bridle and a blanket. And. Um, I grew up with Al, Gore's, Al Gore Jr. He was like mm. Al Gore Sr.'s little boy, and he was always at the stockyards when my grandpa would take me. My grandpa's name was Guy Williams. So I, I grew up, you know, he grew up to be the vice president, and I grew up to be this drummer for mm. this band called Leonard Skinner. What? Mm. How do you say that? But I was always a drummer, and my dad bought me a set of drums when I was nine years old, set of Red Sparkle Slingerlands, And I just went back to what I loved. Um, You know, dad was killed. I went back to Ohio State University. I thought I'd try school again. You know, I was still an idiot. I didn't care about book learning, you know. (laughs) I wish I would've, you know, because I let a lot of people steal money that I've earned for my family. But because I didn't pay too much attention to mathematics and all this other stuff, I've been ripped off
0: the by managers
1: center. and lawyers. You know the yeah. deal, man. These these guys, they slap you on the back. Yeah, man, you're the greatest. But all they're really doing is trying to get their hand in your pocket. Um, I was actually studying pre-law. I wanted to be a lawyer when I was in school. But I didn't have the um, the brains to be a lawyer, you know. Right. So I went I with what I did naturally, which was being a drummer. So I'd been out of the Marines a couple of years. Marshall Tucker were good friends of mine. Mm-hmm. Charlie Daniels was a good friend of mine. Um, you know, he knew that I was a young, hungry musician. And Charlie Daniels and the drummer for Marshall Tucker, Paul Riddle, are the guys that turned Ronnie Van Zant onto my name. And then Ronnie wanted to meet me, so I came here to Atlanta. And there was a big show at the old uh, Fulton County Stadium. It's not there anymore, right? Mm, I don't think so. So it was the Allman Brothers, Marshall Tucker, Leonard Skinner. And they had just kind of started hitting it when they opened up for The Who. Right. And I just did a gig on a ship with Roger Daltrey. I saw that picture with Sebastian Bach. Sebastian. Yeah. I had no idea that Roger was the height that he is. Because mm. I always thought he was 10 feet tall. Yeah, he and sang he, like it. He will always be 10 feet tall That's right, me. yeah. And I also thought, you know, I didn't think that Sebastian Bach was 6'6". Yeah. He's <laughs> humongous. Right. <laughs> and and so Sebastian and I and Roger took a picture. <laughs> Roger's like, yeah. Sebastian's really tall.
0: But that's funny, though, because the Skinner opened for The Who on their very first tour.
1: And I talked to Roger. I, I said, man, I said... You guys, whether you know it or not, are responsible for a lot of the success of Skinner because before they played with you guys, they played for like 50 people. Mm-hmm. And he goes, yeah, he says, I was aware, you know, that Bob had some medical issues. That's the they, original drummer. Bob, Bob Burns, Burns yeah. you know, uh, Robert Burns. And I, I used to introduce Bob this way. Uh, Bob was in my band, APB. Now, I, I have a band. There's five of us. Mm-hmm. We go out all, all the time. We just played in California and Vegas, and we play all over America. And um, my band plays, Leonard Skinner, better than any band in the world. Mm-hmm. I'm 70. They're all like 55. They play the music with respect and honor and accuracy, and they work hard. And people love us because we play the music so well, and we I don't put a guy out there and say, okay, now this is Ronnie Van Zant." I would never do that. I would never call my band, Leonard Skinner. Without Ronnie Van Zant, there is no mm. Leonard Skinner. It's only a tribute. And that's what I do. You just said something very interesting.
0: You said there is no Skinner without Ronnie Van Zant. Talk about Ronnie Van Zant for me, because he's been gone for so long. He's a legendary figure, but I don't know anybody that really knew him. I mean, obviously the guys in the band, but you, you actually knew this guy as a dear friend.
1: I roomed with Ronnie all over the world, Mm -hmm. Japan. um, We were on our way to Australia, all over Europe, uh, Canada, uh, Hawaii. So you know, Ronnie and I shared a stateroom on one of our tour buses, and um, and then you know we were together more than he was with his wife or family. So I knew Ronnie really well, and Ronnie it was a great person. He was a gentleman. Uh, He had a beautiful handwriting, almost like Mm -hmm. a, a woman's. It was, he had a like perfect cursive. Yeah. And he was a total gentleman. But when he got drunk, like anybody else that drinks too much, he turned into an asshole. When I drink too much, I turn into an (laughs) asshole. So I try not to drink too much. (laughs) Me too. (laughs) You know? (laughs) Right. So I I try to watch that.
0: But you're talking about Leonard Skinner in the 70s, which was just the wildest time for rock and roll. And you're one of the biggest bands. I'm sure you guys were crazy half the time. It was
1: crazy. Mm -hmm. Um, There was lots of alcohol, lots of drugs. It, It was out there. And, you know, cocaine and uppers and downers. And, you know, and I was the pothead of the group. The rest of the guys, man, they'd eat anything they could find. They'd snort stuff, you know. They'd drink everything, and they would bang everything that was moving. (laughs) And um, I was an unfaithful husband, Uh, not at first. I held out for a while. But on the road eight months with the band, I became an unfaithful husband. And I'd give anything to be married to the same girl that I married first when I was a Marines, you know, back mm-hmm. in the Marines. Mm-hmm. Uh, her name is Patricia, and she's a wonderful person, and we're great friends. We talk all the time, but the only reason we're friends is because of the strength of her character. So I wish I would have done it, but once you fall off that horse, there's no shutting the barn door after the horse is out. And, mm-hmm. you know, so I mark myself as a, an unfaithful husband, and that's my biggest regret. Mm-hmm. But, but Ronnie uh, was an incredible prolific songwriter he had this knack of writing songs that people relate to and it's hard for my band to pick a set because there's not a bad leonard skinner song mhm there's you know every single song ronnie didn't write hit songs he wrote hit albums back in the days of the albums so did he you know, write the majority of the material ronnie did oh yeah, yeah. he was the visionary mm-hmm. you know he you know, I, I wrote one song with him called That Smell. Oh, wow. Yeah. It's a um, huge song. It's a huge song. and uh, But he wrote with Gary and he wrote, you know. Um, with Alan. With Alan. And, but uh, Ed King. Mm-hmm. He wrote Sweet Home Alabama with Gary and, and Ed. And, um, you know, what, Bob Burns was the original drummer. And he, when he was like just a young dude, like maybe 15, 16, you know, Ronnie... Uh, met him at a baseball game. Actually, Ronnie hit a line drive and hit Bob Burns in the back. (laughs) A lot of people said that they hit him. he got hit in the head, Mm -hmm. but Bob said that he remembered being hit in the back Mm -hmm. and it knocked the breath out of him. And Ronnie came over and Ronnie was standing over him. And he goes, I hear you play drums. (laughs) Bob goes, yeah, I play (laughs) drums. And he goes, well, you're in my band now. So Bob and Gary and, and, ronnie would practice in bob's carport there in florida you know it's jacksonville florida so it's always good weather mm-hmm. i love it down there my place is in saint augustine mm-hmm. my other mm-hmm. home it's where my daughter lives my granddaughter and uh my grandson but in jacksonville the weather was always nice they practiced
0: in the carport
1: yeah oh, yeah yeah yeah, yeah. It, because of the uh you know the yeah, weather so The the rest is history. They went on to be, you know, and then Bob had some medical problems, uh, some issues, and they brought me in um, because I met Ronnie, you know, at the Fulton County Stadium. And Ronnie said, well, you know, Artemis, I'm going to fly five drummers and five sets of drums down to Jacksonville, Florida, and we're going to have a drum off. And I said, sounds good to me, man. Let's go. So about three days later, after I met Ronnie, and he had just been beaten up out in California, hmm. uh, some um, gang had come up to the bus, and this one guy said, "Send off your baddest hombre." Well, naturally, Ronnie had to walk out there, right? And uh, they, when I met him, he had uh, two black eyes, <laughs> uh, fat lips, his nose was pointing that way, cuts. He, he they beat his ass. Mm-hmm. And uh, Gary Rossington came off the bus to see what was happening. And they picked him up and threw him on the trunk of a passing car. It was a cab. And they picked him up and flipped him up on this car. So Gary's going away (laughs) on the back of this car, man. they're, They're, you know, pummeling Ronnie. So when I met him, he... He looked, they were, they, they kidded him and said, said that he looked like Linda Blair Mm and the exorcist, right? (laughs) They said he looked like Reagan, you know, and, um, he was pretty rough. And so three days after I met him and after he said, we're going to do a drum off, he called me up and he said, I've been talking to Charlie Daniels and the Marshall Tucker guys. And they say that you're crazy enough to be in our band. And I just want you to come down to Jacksonville, bring your drums. I said, okay, where are we going to do the drum off? you know, like, like a club or something. He goes, no drum off. You just come on down. And he liked me and he didn't, he wanted to find out if I could play drums. So I came to Atlanta on Peachtree to the Alex Cooley's electric ballroom, which Mm -hmm. is the old Georgian terrace ballroom. It's where they had the the cast party for gone with the wind. Mm -hmm. Right. So Alex Cooley had turned it into a big club called the electric ballroom, Alex Cooley's. And uh, so I met Ed King. And Leon Wilkerson, just a bass and guitar, one guitar, and met them there. And on the way to the gig on Peachtree, my Volkswagen microbus overheated. It's called, uh, you know, vapor lock. Right. It vapor locked on me because it's not water cooled. So I parked it on the curb. On um, there was the Peachtree was four lanes. Boom, 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 boom. And I was parked at the stoplight on the curb in the right lane. I packed up my drums and walked the last two blocks. It took me three trips and I took my drums up to Alex Cooley's electric ballroom and auditioned. And it was about three hours and I didn't care if they towed my van or if I ever saw it again, (laughs) this was the gig that I was, you know, wanted to be there. So I auditioned. Ed King fixed me a Caesar salad at a restaurant next to the ballroom on Peachtree there. Everything was cool. Ed goes, called Ronnie, said, yep he can play drums. Hmm. So that was, that was that. And I went back expecting my, my van to be gone, still sitting there, (laughs) still sitting there and not even a ticket on it. And I left the emergency signals on, you know, and it's a German car. So the signals were still (laughs) kind of bleeping, you know, it was, it was good engineer and, and man, I went in, put the key, started it up vapor lock. It had already got it. it Gone away. And I drove back to Alex Cooley's, loaded up my drums, and uh, went back home. So yeah, that was that was my introduction to well, Ronnie.
0: I, I, you said a couple of things. When you said that you were crazy enough to be in the band, that's what the guy said. What exactly did that mean? You're talking about from a party standpoint, was a lot of fighting too, like your southern boys? It was the, the fact that I was a Marine. Mm-hmm. But how did that how did that relate to the rest of the guys in the band? Was everybody crazy
1: and skinnered? Well, when, when, I, when I say crazy, I mean kind of wild. Yeah, sure. So they, they like to drink and do drugs and everything. Mm-hmm. And I like to smoke weed. Mm-hmm. That, was, that was my thing. How big was Skinner, you know, at this point in time, like when you guys got to use
0: Zenith? Was it sold out arenas every night? Were you in an arena band or was it more like civic center type
1: venues? When I got with the band, they were hitting it. hmm And I went from just like they did. I went from playing for 50 people in some little club where I'd set my drums up, man, and play with anybody that would play with me, you know, to my first show with the guys that was like sold out arenas. And, you know, the biggest show I played was opening up for the Rolling Stones. There Mm. was 300,000 people. The energy was unbelievable. I met Paul McCartney that day. I hung out with Jack Nicholson, (laughs) you know, so you know, these guys had done it. And I always say this, their success was definitely not due to me. All I did was I'm a live drummer. I'm a live guy. Bob was in the studio. I thought Bob, and I always said this, Bob Burns played brilliantly on Pronounced, which is the album that really broke it, man. I came in on Nothing Fancy, Saturday Night Special. It was in on that Burt Reynolds movie,
0: mm-hmm.
1: and awesome. uh, so so Freebird is you, or that's the Bob. Uh, the uh, Freebird is me on all the live stuff, but the
0: studio version Bob Burns. is Bob, Bob Sweet Home Alabama.
1: Bob Burns. That smell is yours. That smells me. Senate Special. Saturday What's Saturday, your name? Yeah, you know uh, all those other songs. Yeah, but Bob was Bob was there, and Bob wasn't uh, he? He he was a live drummer as well, but he really it was Al Cooper. The producer that was in blood, sweat, and tears mm-hmm. that produced them and that uh, produced uh, the tubes and played on Dylan records. the The famous Al Cooper. Yeah, Al was the one that got the warm, fuzzy drum sound that Bob got. And when I came in on nothing fancy, I did not like my drum sound. It was thin. Uh, but all, later on, when they digitally remastered every all of our mm-hmm. catalog. My entire drum sound exploded, cause it sounded the way it did where I was sitting at Ground Zero. Mm-hmm. That's mm-hmm. that's the thunder that I that I bring right there. So they didn't it, it didn't equate on nothing fancy until everything was digitally remastered when they got that stuff going. And first time I heard me and Ronnie doing a song called Train Song, I was spot on, man, because we we rehearsed songs 50 times in a row we'd be doing sweet home alabama 50 times in a row the rest of the band be going ronnie please i didn't care to me pt physical training is what i live for especially as the drummer as the drummer, you got to be right yeah it's got to be right and i don't care if we did it 50 times i was like let's do it again (laughs) but the guys were going ronnie and uh so you know, the sound that I got on uh, after everything was digitally remastered, I can live with for the rest of my life. Mm -hmm. And our, especially our live album that we did at the Fox theater, you know, it was thunder. So, you know, Bob's sound that he got on those, the unpronounced was, was awesome. And that was Al Cooper getting that sound. Mm -hmm. So Al, the day that I recorded Saturday night special, I had flown to Columbus, Ohio to sign the uh, wrongful death papers on my father's death. I was the administrator of his estate, and my mother was getting a big check, you know, from his death. Now it's not big compared to today's, uh, but checks, at the time, but at the time, and and it should have been more. But I flew up and I signed the papers. I was the administrator and I signed the papers, and then I signed the check and I gave it to mom, and she drove me back. her house that my dad had built for her beautiful home dad was a builder so she and i got into a fight because she was upset i was upset you know they gave me this piece of paper this is your father's worth here and it's like i'm signing this check and i'm looking at these lawyers these blood-sucking weasel attorneys you know and i'm going wow you know and i was i was mad so i flew I got in a fight with mom. I got out of the car at a stoplight. It was raining. I hitchhiked to the airport. I had my ticket. I flew back to Atlanta. I had $1 in my pocket. And I, at the Atlanta airport, I had to jump the curb because it was six bucks to get out of the parking lot. Mm-hmm. And I didn't have six bucks, but I had a Volkswagen microbus, And you couldn't do that these days. But there was a curb about like this. Mm-hmm. from the parking lot and the road. So I walked my Volkswagen bus over that curb. Cause man, I've run bulldozers. I've driven mm-hmm. jeeps, I can fly airplanes. I'd do anything. Right. So I walked it over, got out, went to a gas station, put a dollar in the tank, drove across Atlanta, went to studio one and recorded Saturday night special. Mm-hmm. And I was crying. I had tears. And, uh, Al Cooper comes out to the, to my drums and he goes, Artemis, what's wrong? You know? And I said, well, my father was killed in a midair plane collision in Albuquerque. I just signed the papers on his wrongful death. I'm upset. You know, I flew up to Columbus this morning and uh, he said, I'm not trying to be insensitive. He said, but use it, use that. And you listen to the way I play Saturday Night Special, man, I am laying on that mm-hmm. snare drum. Mm-hmm. I am laying on it. You know, it's almost, I um, I played it like heavy metal. So, Skinner goes from like Saturday Night Special and Free Bird, which is almost heavy metal, mm-hmm. to a song like The Ballad of Curtis Lowe mm-hmm. and Simple Man. And every single Skinner song that Bob played on and that I played on are different. There's no two songs that you just play a straight yeah. beat. Yeah. Every song. Stops, starts,
0: mm-hmm.
1: little, and you win. You know, little uh, nuances, mm-hmm. you know. So, I'm very proud of that, that our band and and Ronnie didn't. He didn't hoochie coo around stage and, you know, and do all this stuff. He stood there at that microphone and he sang his words that he wrote, because he meant them. And mm-hmm. you know, so you know that that that's how I got into the band. That's the first time I played that Saturday night special, and and Al just. I said, you know, thank you.
0: It's amazing to me, though, when you're talking about, you know, how big Skinner was and then the fact that you guys started traveling, you know, by a private plane. I had no idea that even though you were involved in one of the most tragic, infamous rock and roll tragedies ever, that your father also passed away in a plane crash.
1: Dad was killed in a crash. That's amazing. I've been in three airplane crashes. You've been in three airplane crashes? When I was 11. My uncle and I, uncle Sammy J. Williams, it's my mother's oldest brother. Uh, we were in a Cessna tail dragger, and all aluminum. And we came in over the power lines, and we got hit. Oh by my a goodness! Crumbling. And we went like this. And I'm sitting on this side, and I'm literally looking out my window, coming in to the gra- is a grass landing gear. It's where all of our crop dusters. Uh-huh. It's where all the the guys that flew crop dusters they landed. And my uncle had his plane there. And so we, we went sideways, and at the last second, Sammy J kicked the rudder like a move I've never seen before. He kicked that rudder, and the plane turned hmm. almost straight on. But because we hit like this. At an angle. We bent our left landing, um, our, our right landing gear. We went in on that, and then we landed, and we did what's called a ground loop. And we went like that and bent the wing and and the landing gear. The plane was unflyable Hmm. after we got through with it. But I was 11 years old. I thought it was fun. (laughs) I was like, you know, I didn't say anything. But, you know, I was like, hey, let's do that again. That was great. Sammy was white as a ghost. Sure. Because I was the oldest of all the grandchildren. My mother was the oldest of eight children, Mm. two boys and six uh, six daughters. And Sammy was like white as a ghost because, you know, what would he do if he...
0: Of course, killed of course.
1: the oldest grandson. Right, uh, but so that was I, the first one. I, that was the first one, and then the second one was in the Marine Corps on a search and rescue mission for a downed pilot, and uh, it was a Phantom, and they they both punched out over the coast, and the uh, pilot uh, was killed, but the navigator made it, hmm. and he landed in his parachute, but the the pilot uh, didn't make it. So we found we found both of them. So we were, we came in in these helicopters and we were going to land and get into boats and then go into the swamp and look for these guys. But when we came in, we had uh, power problems with the, it was a dual rotor. And I heard something, man, gear, I heard gears grinding. And all of a sudden the back of the chopper dropped and we already had the tail down. We already had the, the 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 tailgate down on the chopper. We were all standing there with our gear, full field packs, machetes, everything to go into the underbrush and look for this guy. And, and it dropped down like that. About 10 of us, 15 of us, a whole bunch of us just dropped out from about 60 feet up. You fell out of the chopper? We fell out of the chopper. And then so we're in the water and I'm looking up and that chopper's coming down on top of us. At the last second, the pilot, I don't know how he did it, he diverted it over and slammed in on a sandy beach. Oh, my goodness. And missed us. And we had, I, I was trying to help one guy because he had a full field pack on. He was a short dude. And he was underwater. He he was struggling to get underwater. So I was trying to help him get his gear off, you know, and get his head above water. And I watched that chopper. I mean, it was coming down right on me. Hmm. And and it Went over and slammed onto a beach. They had to come in with a barge. Wow. They had to take it out with a barge. It was unflyable.
0: You're lucky you didn't die falling out of the chopper sixty feet. I know. We hit it, the water. We, can... we were
1: in the water, you know, reeds water, but it was it was deeper than this one guy's height. Mm. And uh, so we got over to the beach, you know. And here's our chopper sitting over there smoking. <laughs> you know, and we're going, we're going. Uh, how are we getting out of here? You know. But uh, we got in the boats, we went out, we completed our mission, we found the guys, and um, did, and they came in with another child. Did that
0: ever give you a fear of flying at all, having those issues, or you just didn't care?
1: No, I I, I do not have a fear of flying. When I, I fly these days, I, I did a movie about Leonard Skinner's plane right, crash. Right. So I had to fly to L.A. like five times. I don't like getting on a plane if I'm not flying it. Mm -hmm. So I, I flew out there five times, lots of takeoffs and landings coming through Hartfields, Hartsfield and going through Charlotte. And Mm -hmm. so that's the worst times are the takeoffs and the landings. That's when you got to worry about things. So lots of, a lot of that. I do like everybody else, man. I, I don't push religion. I believe in a higher power. I lived in the castle of King David. Right. I studied old Testament. I believe in a higher power but I don't try to tell anybody what that is. It's, it's in my mind and my heart because, you know, I, I think there's something after this, but if I try to think about it too hard, my little human brain might explode. So I just live each day. Mm-hmm. So what I do is when I get on a plane, there's a prayer that I, I it's called the wayfarer's prayer. And you, you say, you know, protect me against ambush, protect me against evil amb- animals, Uh, you're supposed to say it when you're leaving a city, Mm -hmm. as you leave the city gates, you say the wayfarer's prayer. Well, I, I equate that into when I'm sitting on the tarmac, sitting on the runway about to take off. When we power up, I put both hands on my knees, my, my feet flat on the floor. And I say my prayer and I end it's Hebrew. It's a show me, and I end with that. And, um, and then, so. then we pull off right. and I figure, you know, a lot of guys go, you've been in three airplane crashes and uh, technically two airplane crashes and a helicopter. Ride. <laughs> um, so I'm not going to fly with you. And I go, man, the safest place in the world is <laughs> yeah. not an airplane with me. Are you kidding? What are the odds? <laughs> what are the I'm odds? Gonna, <laughs> I'm going to have a fourth airplane crash. Uh, but they said, well, you probably said that on the second one and the third one <laughs> too. And I said, no, I didn't think about it that way. <laughs> but I, I flew hang gliders for a long time, Yeah, you know an 18 foot regalo Mm -hmm. wing. It's a Delta wing. You jump off a cliff and you, and you, you fly. Mm -hmm. But then uh, my last, uh, plane crash and car wreck, I had a really bad motorcycle wreck, um, broke my right leg in, uh, 21 places. Oh my gosh. That's why I wear boots. Yeah. Cause in this, in this boot, I've got a buildup. Gotcha. Yeah. My, my right leg is fused. My Mm -hmm. ankle's fused. Mm -hmm. I'm stainless steel from the knee to my ankle. And, um, I have a, harley Davidson. now that i ride mm-hmm. up on the blue ridge parkway so for my age and and my injuries you know i'm able to have a yeah. solid gray and and I, I ride it well let's talk about the Skinner
0: crash i mean had you been flying on private jets for a while during the
1: tour or was this a new thing no um we didn't have a jet but it's funny you should say that because an hour before we crashed We all got together and put our hands together, man, like the old, you know, brotherhood thing. We all put our hands together and said, you know, that we were going to get rid of the plane that we were on because it was a reciprocal. It had, it was a Pratt & Whitney powered. And the one we had before that belonged to Jerry Lee Lewis. Mm -hmm. And it was Rolls-Royce engines on that thing. It was a 1947 or 1948 Convair 560 jet prop with turbo it had turbo and i flew it too i flew both of those planes wow the pilot would make sure that i wasn't drunk or you know mm-hmm. screwed up and i'd slip into the co-pilot seat and uh less would let me fly and uh i you know
0: so the first one i'm, I'm assuming was better like you said the rolls royce The engine. first one was better so the one that crashed
1: was not as good was, yeah the one that crashed the way they got us to use it it was a 47 now i was born in 1948 you know, and I'm okay. So I figured that plane in 48, this is in 77. Sure. I figured that plane's fine. But the one that they replaced it with was a Pratt and Whitney engines, reciprocal, no, no turbo. So it was slower, more sluggish. Like I said, I I flew both of them and we had promised ourselves just an hour before we crashed that we were going to buy two brand new tour buses and have them designed however the crew wanted to design them. And for the girls, we we're going to get one for the girls and one for the, the, the crew. Then they could follow the equipment and they'd be at the gig. Mm-hmm. We were going to get a Learjet so that we could get on that Learjet man and go zip, zip. Cause our, our fly time was usually two and a half hours average, but with a, with a Lear, We could have done it like 45 minutes or less Mm -hmm. in that area. So we were going to get a Learjet, paint it all up, man, with our logos on it and everything. And at the same time, all of our catalog, MTV was about to take all of our catalog and make video because videos were big, were coming in. So they were going to do videos with a a cinematographer, somebody um, like Scorsese scorsese or somebody somebody really big was going to come in and put together beautiful videos on all of our catalog that never happened all of that 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 cool stuff went to 38 special wow remember their remember their videos they had those beautiful videos teacher
0: teacher and all those two right
1: all that cool stuff well that's what was going to happen to us but, because but, the singer of 38
0: Special was Ronnie's brother. It was Donnie, brother. Donnie Van Zandt. Donnie yeah. Van
1: Zandt. Mm-hmm. And the, the lead singer for that band is Don Barnes. He's the one who sang the hits. Gotcha. But Donnie Van Zant was a Van Zant. They'd put a Stetson on him and they'd get him out there. They'd literally hook a, a hook to him and pull him up on a rope and <laughs> swing him out over the crowd. <laughs> and he'd take big full bottles and full cans of beer and pull them on him. Deep. Deep, deep, <laughs> just hitting people in the head. Right. Oh man! See the scar? I got it from Donnie Van sandy He hit me in the head with a full beard. Um,
0: so that—that's yeah. So what, you guys had made this pact that
1: we're getting rid of this plane. We were getting rid of the yeah. plane by two new buses. Ronnie had—he didn't like New York City. Our manager Peter Rudge was a crook and was stealing money from the band. Ronnie didn't like him, but Peter Rudge, when we crashed that airplane and Ronnie was killed. Rudge made multi millions of dollars because he had a key man life insurance policy on Ronnie. So the two people that made the most money when Ronnie was killed was his wife, Judy and our road crew. uh, One of the guys, Craig Reed was carrying the divorce papers. Ronnie was divorcing Judy. Mm. He told us that he was going to pay her off, divorce her, pay her off and send her on her way. That's what he told us. And Craig was carrying the divorce papers on, on the plane. And so when Ronnie was killed, she hit the lottery and mm-hmm. she has used that money to try to divide and conquer Leonard Skinnard, us men, yeah. us idiots, every sense. And because she's got a bunch of bloodsucking weasel attorneys up in New York city that would sue their mothers, you know, she's been able to divide and conquer and cause so much trouble. And you know, united you stand, divided you fall right and and Judy has divided us. Mm-hmm. she made a billion dollars because Leonard Skinner is a billion dollars sure. industry sure so she's got multiple millions of dollars. Peter Rudge the manager made multiple millions of dollars he bought a, he bought a soccer team with the money mm-hmm. he made from Ronnie's death. so a lot of people were going, let's see Judy and Peter made millions of dollars. Everybody else got screwed, you know. So there was a few conspiracy theories going around at that time. But, you know, I don't buy into it. Sure, sure, sure. I don't buy into it. So where were you guys flying from? Greenville, South Carolina. That to- was the last night that Ronnie Van Zant ever sang Free Bird was in Greenville. And ironically enough, the very first major gig that I did with the band was in Greenville, South mm-hmm. Carolina. The last gig that I ever did with the band that Ronnie sang Freebird was in Greenville. And you guys were flying to Baton Rouge? And we were on our way to to Baton Rouge, Louisiana. And uh, we were going to pick up a mechanic that was going to come out. We had our name painted on the nose of it. It was red, white, and blue. You know, we wanted the the other Jerry Lee Lewis's airplane, man, because it was cool. But that was the plane that we had, and we were going to get the Learjet. I mean that wasn't just something we were tossing around. We were going to do it. Mm-hmm. And then Ronnie, the reason I was telling you about Peter Rush right. was because Ronnie didn't like what was going on in New York City. Ronnie explained it to us this way. He says, "Guys, if we send a million dollars to New York City and it's supposed to end up in our bank accounts, you know, in our families in Florida, a million a million bucks doesn't show up." Mm-hmm. And it's not even Peter Rudge's unbelievable 30% that Ronnie was talking about. Wow. He was talking about a lot of money didn't make it to where it was supposed to make it. So Ronnie and all of us had designed a studio with loading docks for our semis to back in and load the equipment, apartments for all of us that lived out of state to live in while we're, you know, in, in country, in town, recording, you know, recording and and rehearsing Uh, a beautiful rehearsal studio, a recording studio and offices. We were going to do the whole thing in Jacksonville, Florida. Mm -hmm. That was going to happen. Ronnie had told Rudge, Hey man, you know, I feel like there's money that's missing. So we're going to move every, the whole operation to Jacksonville. And uh, I don't think Rudge liked that. So, you know, uh, we ran out of fuel. We took on 400 gallons of fuel in Greenville, South Carolina. That did not top off the tanks. A pilot, if you're a pilot, you're supposed to take a wooden stick and put it down in your tank. If you're the gauges on a 47 or 48 airplane, Mm. you don't really want to trust all your gauges. Um, Old school, put your dipstick in and see what you you got. You take a wooden stick and you look on and you see where your fuel level is. Well, they didn't do that. Mm. 400 gallons it did not top off our tanks we were 60 miles away from baton rouge louisiana mm. we almost made it but we spiraled in from nine thousand feet everybody knew that it wasn't going to end well
0: so when you were in the air do you, the, the, the prior to the flight do you, do you remember anything that we just hanging out were you guys talking playing cars what would you guys do on the flight
1: i was the last one to get on the plane mm-hmm. because i lived in campobello south carolina and my wife drove me over in a Jeep that I had bought her. I had many Jeeps, I'm a Jeep freak. Mm -hmm. And uh, so I had bought her this really cool brand new Jeep for having my second son, Marshall. He was born March 23rd, 1976. He's my bicentennial baby. Mm -hmm. And I bought her this Jeep. She drove me to the airport through all the little back roads, through the peach orchards. We drove up to the back of the plane. I literally stepped out of the driver's seat onto the back step of the plane walked up in the plane you know kissed my wife goodbye walked up into the plane alan collins and i and a guy named kevin elson he was our sound man kevin went on to work journey yeah Yeah, he's a producer kevin he was on that plane kevin was on the plane no kidding they said he'd never walk again and uh he showed them they were wrong they said i'd never walk again or play again or do anything Mm -hmm. again and i showed them wrong but Kevin and I and Alan Collins were standing up by the cargo door going into the cockpit. There was a door that they used to, this plane was built for Eastern airlines. It was an airliner, but we had it configured for like a, like a tour bus, Mm -hmm. no bunks, but there was a couch Ronnie liked the couch. So the door was open and we're watching them try to start the right engine and it's choking big black smoke you know it's choking down those all those jugs right man it's firing off but it's choking out black smoke and i'm going hmm that's not good so we had called ahead to falcon airways in dallas texas they were sending a mechanic to meet us in louisiana to fix the plane until we got our leer so i'm standing there and alan and i are smoking a big fat doobie you know and i'm looking over at the tarmac and i'm thinking to myself that's The last time I saw my father was when he flew down in a Beechcraft Baron. It was a company plane, twin engine, and they're nice planes. And he flew down in the company Beechcraft Baron, and he took off from right then. And I'm looking at the place where my dad took off the last time I saw him alive. And I'm smoking this doobie, and I'm uh, with Alan. I don't think Kevin—Kevin wasn't a—he wasn't a pothead, but— I am a pothead. So Alan and I are smoking this big doobie. Alan's birthday is July 19th. Mine's July 15th. Both of us were on a full moon, (laughs) man. Our water was a sloshing (laughs) and we, and, and Alan was a wild dude, man. So we're smoking that doobie and I'm thinking this, you know, okay, that's where I saw my dad. Now I was kind of melancholy. Mm -hmm. So, but I, but I thought, you know, dad would be really proud of me. And, um, So we shut the doors, we buttoned it up, and we taxied out and took off in the Wild Blue Yonder. About two hours later, we're at 9,000 feet on our final approach. I'm up in the cockpit because I stayed in the little navigator jump seat as much as I could because I love seeing Mm -hmm. out. And any time the co-pilot would get up to go to the bathroom or the head or the the galley to get a sandwich or whatever, just stretch his legs, Mm -hmm. walk back through the cabin, I'd slip in. You know, Mm -hmm. and I'd look over at Les and he'd look at me and go to see if I was right okay. Yeah. And and I'd say, Can I? And he'd go, Mm -hmm. Go ahead. So, you know, I'd grab the controls, you know, and I'm flying the plane, you know. And a couple of times Alan Collins came up and he saw me flying the plane. And he'd run back through. The cabin going, Artemis is flying the plane. <laughs> Artemis is flying the plane. <laughs> you know, and everybody would run forward to see me up there in the in the cockpit. So I got to the point where if I ever did get to fly and I'd slip in the the, the cockpit, I'd shut the door mm-hmm. so that nobody could come in and yeah. see. You know, because I, I I enjoyed that. So um, but were, that was you that was, were sitting up there. I, getting I was in, in there, the final approach, right? And the uh, right engine choked out.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: And that's the engine we were having trouble. And I said to, to um Walt, Walter McCreary, the pilot, I said, Walt, we've got we can fly on one engine, right? Because they're they're built to fly on one engine. You just adjust everything and you can you can get it down. Mm. And he said, Oh yeah, yeah, we can fly on one engine. And then while we were saying those words, the other engine choked out. Mm. And I know in Marine Corps, uh, on the planes that I worked on, A4C Skyhawks, you've got a main bag and you've got wing tanks and you've got drop tanks and you can transfer fuel from the drop tanks into the wings and then you can transfer fuel from the wings into the main bag. But we didn't have any fuel to transfer. He was like, you know, he's hitting all the things trying to transfer fuel and there's no fuel to transfer. Oh we were out of gas and I'm sitting there going, wow. So... I got up and walked back through the cabin, told everybody, buckle up, put your seatbelts on, get a pillow, you know, uh, get into position. When we, you know, when we, when we come in, you're going to have to like lean over and put your head between your legs, man. That's, that's the way it's done. And I was, you know, I told everybody to put out your damn cigarettes, you know, and uh, get ready. And so I went back to the cockpit and I sat down, man, and we're, we're looking we're coming out of the clouds. We're trying. We're still in clouds. So you're just gliding. S- scary. We're gliding. Mm. And we're looking, you know, all of a sudden we dropped below the ceiling and we, we could see. And I saw trees. I'm seeing trees and I'm going, hmm. You know, and we're still gliding and we're going to try to make, you know, Walter turned to me and his eyes were freaked out. His eyes, he he was, he was, he was, his adrenaline was pumping. And he said, you better go back and strap yourself in, Artemis. I didn't say a word. I just got up like a zombie. And I walked back and I strapped myself in to the first seat that I came to, which was over the left wing on the aisle behind Cassie Gaines. And next to a guy named Don Crutchmeyer. He was worked for Shoco, our... our lights and sound we had everybody flying mm-hmm. with us. we had lights sound we had two guys from rolling stone that were traveling to write an article about so us. you got like 15 20 people on this we had 26 26 people. 26 people on board and um six were killed on impact and me and 19 others which is unheard of that, that the way our plane was torn up it's unheard of that anybody survived so you strap yourself in and now you're going down and now we're going down so i see uh john gray the the co-pilot he comes back through the cabin and goes uh we're going to try to make a field or or a, the interstate we were running parallel to oh i55 oh gosh i55 it goes from memphis down right that we're running parallel to it so we're all going okay
0: so it's just like when a car runs out of gas you still have control but, but so you still can control the plane
1: you just can't slow it down but you still can steer it and we still had hydraulics. Gotcha. Okay, I got gotcha. you. That's what, yeah. We had hydraulics, okay. th- so they could the you know the flaps, the rudders, everything worked. So you're trying to guide it over to the interstate so you can yeah. land flat. Yeah, because okay. it's a it's a 1947 airplane. They didn't have digital control. Right, they had no computer. Of course, you know right. So it's all fly by wire. Mm-hmm. And so we're looking around. I I'm strapped in, and then Ronnie comes down the aisle and he's going to the back of the plane. And I thought to myself, that's, that's a good thing. You know, Ronnie's going to the back of the plane. It's safer back there. And all, then he, all of a sudden I realized Ronnie's coming up the aisle. He's right beside me. I stuck out my hand. We did the old hippie handshake, you know, boom, boom, boom. <laughs> and we're, we got the hippie handshake and Ronnie gave me this beautiful smile we didn't say a word and he had told me in Tokyo, Japan that he would not live to see 30 and he was going to go out with his boots on. And it was just me and him sitting in a bar in Tokyo at the, at the, at the cocktail lounge. He said that. And I said, Oh, Ronnie, man, you're going to live forever, dude. And he will Mm -hmm. his, yeah, right. He'll live forever. So the thing about him not living to be 30, he said that he was 29 No. That day he was 29. Wow. And so Ronnie knew his destiny. Mm-hmm. And yet, what did he do? He walked back to the front of the plane. He had a pillow. It was a crimson, maroon, velvet pillow that we we had different pillows on the thing. And he had grabbed one for impact. He was going to put it, you know, in his lap. And he we shook hands. He gave me this beautiful smile and then walked up the aisle. And it's the last time I saw him. Mm-hmm. The rest is history.
0: So, when when you're land, like, how did you guys end up landing?
1: Well, we didn't make it. Uh, we were gonna. We didn't make it to the interstate. Right. We didn't make it to a field. Yeah. <laughs> As we were going in, this is disputed, but I heard it. I know what it sounds like. You were there. (laughs) I was there. I heard the landing gear go down. We still had hydraulics. And I heard the landing gear go down, but I didn't hear it lock. When it locks, there's a specific sound. When the landing gear locks, it's like a crunch, crunch, bang. And the landing gear did not lock. But I thought to myself, man, if we're going to land in a field – want you want a belly in you don't want you don't want your landing here because it'll trip you Mm -hmm. and and I thought man you know so we must I thought we must be gonna land on the interstate on the I-55 but when we came out I'm looking out over the window out the window and I see the trees coming up so we landed We glided in to Mississippi pine trees and you could feel the trees brushing against the fuselage. You could hear it scratching like that. And as we lowered into the trees and the limbs got bigger and bigger and bigger and bigger, that plane came apart. Hmm. I watched the left wing come off. I'm, I'm looking out the window. We're jamming. And I saw that left wing just come off. And I thought, that's not good. And then the impact was just so hard. It was just, it felt like a thousand baseball bats being hit against the fuselage. And it was just thump, 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 like, you know, and then we got down into the thick of the trees and the plane just started coming apart. And then I was never knocked unconscious. I've never been knocked out. Wow. And so, bam, we, we stopped and I'm leaned forward and my chest hurts really bad. And the first thing you do, I'm sure you know as a man, first thing you do is you check your your package. Mm-hmm. You check your junk. Mm-hmm. And that's what I did. I, I I grabbed my balls to see if I was okay because I couldn't see. Mm-hmm. And it was dark and there was smoke, you know, from from hydraulic fluid hitting hot engines. And there was there was just it, it you know, so I reached down and grabbed myself. And thought, okay, I'm centered. Mm-hmm. And I kind of tried to lean up, but there was wreckage on top of me. Wow. So I pushed with my legs through the floor and and, and jagged metal all under me. And there was a, a little sapling tree that had come up through the fuselage between the legs of Don Kretschmeyer, who was sitting to the left of me. Oh my gosh. And I pushed through the, fu- the the wreckage and cut my legs up really bad. And got it cleared out and dropped to the ground underneath the wreckage. So it was like hanging kind of. It was kind of hanging. And I had maybe, you know, about that far from there to the ground. I got down to the ground and I'm thinking, you know, I'm going to have to, you know, stand up. I I felt like I had to stand up. But I heard Don Kretschmeyer yelling, I'm trapped. I'm pinned. So... I didn't realize that we were completely out of fuel. I thought the whole thing was going to burst into flames. So I heard Don. So I threaded myself back up through the wreckage that I'd just come out of back into my little space. And I'm kind of standing there looking at Don. And I helped him bring his leg over this sheared off sapling. And you know what? Grass smells like it when you cut the grass. Mm. You know what? What if you're you're cutting down a tree? The sap. It's, it's got that sap yeah. smell, and I could smell that. And I got his legs, and I threaded him down behind me through my opening, and he dropped to the ground. I helped him over to a tree. There was another guy sitting there with a severe injury, arm, his arm, and he was bleeding profusely. And I I made a tourniquet. I I you know in the Marine Corps yeah. you train triage, so. I made a tourniquet and I told it, I remember saying to him, you know, about tourniquets, you got to back it off every five minutes or, you, you know, you'll, you'll lose your, your, your arm. And he's going, I, yeah, I got it. He's leaning up against a tree and Don Kretschmeyer was leaning up against the same tree. They were in the, I, that's the last, I saw them there. He had the tourniquet on. I'd made a tourniquet out of a piece of shirt, mm. something. So then I made my way to the front of where the plane used to be. I started going up there and I found the cockpit area. And then I found both of the pilot and co-pilot. The the pilot, Walt, was torn to pieces. Oh, wow. And he was decapitated. Oh, my god! And he was hanging in a tree. Oh, my gosh. And the co-pilot was up against like a bulkhead. And I went to take a pulse. I went to see if I could get a pulse on him right here. And he was not attached. He, he said he is he was cut all up and from his, his neck. head was just like yeah. and i heard billy powell yell where's the pilots because in a situation like that you think the pilots are the authority right the captain of the ship Yeah. you know so we've got to find them and then everything'll be okay and i yelled to billy as loud as i could with my injuries i said the pilots are definitely gone and I knew at that time, the only thing that was going to help my friends was for me to put one foot in front of the other and go get help, find help, bring help back to the crash site, which is exactly what I did. But as I left the scene, when in, in the crash, the centrifugal force, the, the force, m- both of my shoes had come off. My boots, I had on, they were steel-toed locks boots, L O X which stands for liquid oxygen. In the Marine Corps, when you work on an airplane and you're putting liquid oxygen into the plane, you have these boots that they they issue you that they're not laced up. So if you drop liquid oxygen into your boot, you can get your boots off quick. Mm-hmm. And I liked them. They were black. They had steel toes over, uh, under the leather. And both of those boots had just come off my feet. Wow. So my socks were about six inches over the edge of my toes. Oh, yeah, yeah. And so I couldn't bend over to pull my socks up or take them off. And there was a, a jacket it belonged to Steve Gaines. It was a, a, a denim jacket hanging in the wreckage. Jeez. And I just looked up and I saw it and I, I pulled it out. And I knew about shock, that I'd be going into shock. So I put it around me. I put it, I, you know, I got my arms in. And it was painful to put the coat on, but I knew that I needed to, something warm So I started walking and I got into water. There was like a black water. So you're walking through a forest, basically. There was a little swamp and a forest. Yeah. And uh, it was difficult because the briars and the brambles underneath me were getting caught on my socks. And I was trying to pull my feet. And I was was just, so I got through the water and um, there was a snake that slithered by me it came up my peripheral vision picked it up it was coming i saw this snake and i literally made myself laugh i don't know why i did this but i said to the snake i will bite your f- head off i said that out loud <laughs> and when i heard myself say that out loud i laughed i kind of went <clears throat> what are you doing mm. you know and the snake just slithered on by <laughs> It just, you know, I don't know what kind of snake it was. It was black, you know, it was in the dark. water. Yeah, it was in the water. So it just went on by, and I was like, "Is, is it?" So you said it's dark. Is this like kind of nighttime? Uh, we Evening? crashed at six forty three okay. in October. So it's pretty much getting to night. Yeah, dusk at least. It's, yeah, it's sun sun's going down. Yeah, and especially beneath the canopy of the trees. Sure, it's when, dark when we were above the canopy, even though there was a cloud, a ceiling. It was still daylight. Yeah. But when you get down under that canopy of the trees, and then it, the, as it, time goes on. So it's October. It's getting dark. And you don't know where you're going. I have. Well, the I did. Um, they said that we were headed in the direction of a field. Okay. Or the interstate. Right. So I thought, well, I'll just go in the direction that we were headed. And I was wrong. Mm. Because... We had turned, turned a little bit. Because right. we were doing this. We were we were we were looking. Yeah. We were looking, you know, for a place to land. So I I went straight. And I don't even know how far, maybe a mile. I ran into a plowed field. Hmm. And I came to a barbed wire fence out of the the trees and the swamp. And there was like 20 cows on the other side of the fence. And I knew that if there's cows, there's people somewhere. So I had no leverage to jump or, you know, make a move. Had you broken a rib or something? I, or? I had broken all the cartilage in my chest. Gotcha. All the way down. Oh, wow. Was my whole chest plate was, was and it wasn't cut, but all the cartilage inside, the impact. Yeah. I went like that on the impact and it ripped all my chest Ooh, cartilage. Okay, okay. So I couldn't jump. So I had to lay on top of the barbed wire fence, which was not Whoa. pleasant. And I, I laid horizontal on the barbed wire fence. I was being poked by all the barbed wire all the way, the length of my body. And I rolled over and dropped on the ground. Mm. And all these cows, man, you know how cows are. They just walked up and they're kind of looking down at me, <laughs> you know. And I'm going to tell you, man, those cows... They were beautiful hmm, to me. Sure. Um, I'm not saying I would French kiss all those cows, but I would have French kissed every one of those cows. <laughs> and cause they, they were beautiful. That was survival me. for you. You knew it that was, you, yeah. it was people. So yeah. I got up and I'm walking across this field and it was a freshly plowed field. And it's hard to walk on deep furrows on a fr- freshly plowed field. If you're a healthy, you know, adult man, yeah. you know? So I got across the field. I found a, a gravel road, and there were some guys behind me that had started coming out of the plane uh, Kenny Peden, uh, p e d e n Kenny, he worked for Shoko, and then Mark Frank, who lives in Spartanburg, South Carolina. They were some degree, you know they they were about something a hundred yards or whatever behind me when I came out into the field. and they kept yelling for me to wait. And I with my you know, as much breath as I could, I said, I can't wait you wait, I got to go. So I got to the gravel road out in the country. I turned to the right because I heard music coming out of a pickup truck that was sitting in a field up off the road. And I saw it and I could hear the the people, I could hear the music and I saw people And I started kind of stumbling that way. All of a sudden, the pickup truck comes out on the gravel road and hauls ass right beside me. It kind of almost spun me around like a cartoon. Mm. And it smoke, you know, uh, uh, dust from the gravel road. And they thought I was like some escaped criminal or something because mm. I'm covered with blood. Oh, and, you're bleeding too. Right, yeah. And I look like Charles Manson. <laughs> you know. Right? So I'm like, so they're not going to stop and go, hey, can we help mm. you? You know, and this is back in the days where hippies, you know, weren't uh, the sure. uh, pillars of society, let's say. <laughs> yeah. And uh, so they passed me. I'm choking on the smoke. So I turned and kind of just kind of like a zombie just kind of started following the the, the truck. It was going somewhere, you know, and maybe there were some people. So I passed a driveway and it was a a farmhouse and a barn and a barnyard. So I turned up in the barnyard and uh, I started walking toward the house and a guy comes out of the house with a gun. He sees me and he tells me to stop. He says, stop. And I I tried to stop, but I was, Mm. you know, I was stumbling and I took another few steps and he, I heard a gunshot, and I felt something sting me in my oh left my shoulder. Oh, my gosh. And I, I was already in shock from the plane crash. So I didn't know what it was, and I saw cotton on, the, on the, the coat that Steve Gaines had, had little pads, like this coat I'm wearing, had a little bit of a pad, you know, in, in the, to, to give it shape. And I saw it, it just like that, uh, cotton, like a puff. And I, I I was confused, but when it hit me, it spun me. Oh my gosh! And I spun to the ground, and I yelled with what I thought was the last breath I ever would take: plane crash. And uh, Johnny Johnny Moat, he ran over, he picked me up, and he said, "Oh my God, I'm so sorry." And he that's me. the farmer. That was the farmer. Yeah. He was a, a a twenty year old farmer with a you know hardworking. Yeah. yeah. He looked like freaking uh, little Abner man. <laughs> he had a little waist. He had a big, man. He was built. You know, he had arms on him, man. Mm. And he just kind of picked me up, took me into his house, into his little farmhouse. I didn't even ask. I walked over to a wall phone. I picked it off the thing. I dialed my number directly. I dialed my wife and I said, honey, she picked up the phone and I'd just seen her two hours earlier. She took me to the plane. I said, honey, we've had an airplane crash and there are people that have been killed. I said, I'm alive. And I got to go back. I said, you're going to see it on television. You're going to hear it on the radio, but I'm alive. And she said, oh, honey, you know, and I said, I got to go. It was less than 30 seconds. And she said, I understand. So I walked back out. Johnny put me in his pickup truck and here comes all kinds of cars coming up because it was a civil defense drill. A week before and they were prepared it was a civil defense right and so there were uh highway patrol cars local constables police cars who had and- who had alerted them the- ambulances Johnny. well no i don't know if i i never did know that oh. because the whole county heard it oh i see they thought it was a train wreck oh i see i got because it because of the noise that it mm-hmm. made when we went in and, and just at all the farms around there, all the people heard it and they thought a train had derailed. So they all, you know, mustered up, you know, to come for that. So they, they came to that area. So they were all pulling up and, and, you know, and it was, it was a sight for sore eyes to me because it was mm. help. Mm. So Johnny put me in his pickup truck with that big, strong arm. He just held me up against the seat and he said, you point, I'll drive. And I just went like this. We went out of his driveway through a ditch, up a bank, through a fence. Boom, 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 like that. And I'm like, you know, he's holding me. And behind us are all these rescue vehicles. And going across, some of them could make it. Some of them were four-wheel drive. Some of them couldn't. Some of them got stuck in the field. A lot of them made it to right where I had come out of the woods. And I kept pointing and right there's where I came out of the woods. Mm-hmm. There were still some cows there. And they they went over the fence. They drove over the fence and knocked it down, all the all the cars. So the last thing I saw before they took me away was a hundred people with jaws of life, medical bags, emergency stuff going in. Mm-hmm. And they asked me, they said, where is it? And I said, if you take a baseball and you throw from home plate to center field, you'll be right on top of the plane. And the guy looked at me like, got it. And they took off. And that's the last thing I saw was them going in to help my friends because they were bleeding to death. Mm -hmm. Every second counted. So they put me in a pickup truck with a lawyer that had made it over there. So he drove me back to the gravel road and then to the main road and he was taking me to the hospital and he was driving like a maniac and he got on the gravel road and he's fishtailing. He got to the end of that stop sign. I remember he missed the stop sign and went across the road and went down an embankment and we're sliding. Oh my gosh. And he got it back up on the road. And I I said, sir, what what do you do? He goes. I'm an attorney. I'm a lawyer. And I said, "Well, counselor, slow down." <laughs> I said, "I just survived an airplane crash, and I think a guy shot me. Um, I don't want to die in a car wreck on the way to the hospital. <laughs> slow the f- down." So he he said, "Yes, sir," <laughs> and because and, I, I I did not I looked mean. Oh yeah, I looked bad. Oh yeah, and he he said, "Yes, sir," and he. <laughs> Took me to Magnolia, uh, Liberty Liberty County, Mississippi, Magnolia, and the hospital was named Magnolia. But we ended up going in five different hospitals. So when I got to the hospital, they put me on a gurney and they said, can you tell us how many people were on the plane? And I named every single person on that plane except for two. And they were the two guys from Rolling Stone. Oh, I hadn't gotten to know them yet, mm-hmm. but I did account for their bodies, and they weren't killed; mm-hmm. they, they survived. Uh, I did account for their presence on the plane, right. so they know they knew how many humans to look for, and um, and then they took me away. And uh, the next day, you know, the doctor came in, and he said, uh, "You've been. I hear you've been asking who made it and who didn't." And I said, "Yeah." And he said, do you want it? Are you ready? And I said, yeah. And I knew Ronnie. I, I knew Ronnie didn't make it. He told me in, Japan, in Tokyo. He said, I'm not going to live. He knew his destiny. And he was at the front of the plane. And that plane was torn to pieces. He said, are you ready? And I said, yeah. So I didn't expect Steve Gaines. That was... <sighs> That was, that was a shock. Mm-hmm. And then Dean Kilpatrick. And I knew the pilots were dead because I found them. That wasn't, you know, a shock. but
0: And what was Dean? One of your crew?
1: Dean was, he, Dean, man, there's a new documentary out called If I Leave Here Tomorrow. Yeah. It's on Showtime. Yeah, I haven't seen it yet. You should watch it. I heard it <laughs> it's on Showtime demand. Yeah, yeah. If you go someplace, watch it because it's really good. Mm-hmm. Gary spoke really well. He's funny. Ed King spoke well. He was funny. Judy Van Zant, even though you know she's greed has ruled her life, she spoke well in in the documentary. But they talk about Dean, and he was like Ronnie's personal guy. Gotcha. And, uh, Dean would uh, arrange. Uh, he looked like a rock star mm-hmm. too. He had long hair. He was a handsome guy. He was fun, you know, and uh, he would arrange limousines. Uh, hotel rooms, flights. If we needed it, uh, he would arrange anything. Gotcha. Yeah. You know, if somebody in the band wanted something. He's
0: an important guy
1: to have. He was the road. guy. Yeah. And he'd be on stage with towels and cigarettes. Gotcha. You know, and and uh, and shots. He's a road manager. He's a stage manager. He, he really, yeah. he really was the stage manager, road manager yeah. guy. And mm-hmm. he was killed. And and Dean was a, a great person. And and that, you know, I hated to hear that, but I knew he was up front. So the pilot, the co-pilot, Dean Kilpatrick, Cassie Gaines, Steve Gaines, and Ronnie Van Zandt, Mm. um, you know, did not survive. But it was, you know, it's something I think about every day. It's it's not like, you know, you're bringing up stuff. When I really get into the crux of it, sometimes it's very emotional. It's hard. Sure it is, man. It it wells up. I, I never know when to expect it. But I think about it every day. I think about them every day. And every time I play music and I'm playing the Skynyrd songs, uh, I think about them. Mm. I'm I'm drawing strength from all of them, you know, by playing that music, especially the Skynyrd stuff. I push everything else aside. I push all of the pain. I'm in a lot of pain uh, all the time with my legs and my injuries and stuff. Uh, I push everything away and I concentrate and focus immediately uh, directly on those songs for that two hours that mm-hmm. I'm on stage. Sure. And it saved my life. I was talking to Dave Grohl back at Christmas. I did a thing to to raise money for the Habitat of Humanity. It's called a Christmas Jam. Uh, Warren Haynes does it every year. Raises, builds houses for people that need mm-hmm. homes. And Dave Grohl, he came out and played guitar on Simple Man. We, it was the last song of the last day of the jam. It was sold out. The place had been sold out every day. Everybody was in great spirits, man. We were expecting two feet of snow that yeah. night. I, I drove my Jeep because I got a winch and I got four-wheel drive. And I took my son because he had a ticket to go see it. Mm-hmm. And they, they, when I drove up, they said, Artemis, you want to come in? And I said, okay. So I came in. Place was packed. Dave Grohl calls me up on stage to play Simple Man. And I, I'd seen him before the show. And he said, "Man, we both lost our singers right. in tragic circumstances. We're both in the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame." And I said, "Because of Ronnie." Mm-hmm. He, he goes, and and uh, and he said, uh, "And music brought us both back to life." Mm-hmm. And, he, and and dave said we're kindred spirits man i said mm-hmm. i reckon so man we are
0: last couple of questions for you what exactly what were your injuries then you had the cra- the this cartilage uh, issue and some cuts stitches
1: um cuts in you know on my yeah. legs for pushing my way through the wreckage sure. and metal and uh
0: yeah that was and a- then, and then who was like the first do you remember who you saw from the band Like, did did you, did you guys ever see each other in the hospital at all? Or was it like, I guess my question is, when did you all get together to kind of discuss and figure out what the you're going to do?
1: Well, I went, I was, I could walk. Right. And I wanted everybody, we went to five different hospitals. They medevaced Gary and Alan because their injuries were so bad to, um, let me just say, everybody was bad. Everybody, like,
0: everybody was had like Billy Powell had, almost lost his, his nose. Bill, Billy's nose was almost severed. Leon's arm was never the same. He had to play his bass basically upright for yeah, the rest he of his had career. To have a
1: special bass thing made. So Leon was DOA. They lost him. Wow. Uh, they lost him two times, where they had him, and then he they lost him. They had him, they lost him, they lost him then he came back. Leon was amazing. He was totally cut. His whole gut was cut open. Oh they had to open him up right here and so and wire his mouth shut. Wow. You know, he was swelled up. But I went to see everybody that I could. I couldn't see Gary Allen. But I, I went to see everybody else in the hospitals that were close to my hospital in Magnolia after three days. And I had my friend, Jack Diamond Phillips, drive me to the crash site and they were loading pieces of the plane they had big trucks they had bulldozed a road into the plane and they had a you know a, a dirt bulldozed road and they had big trucks and they were dropping pieces of the airplane into the trucks and it sounded like the crash and it really it affected me and i saw some guy leaning on a shovel made a comment about a bunch of drug addicts and i went for him big old dude had Uh, bib overalls on Mm -hmm. and my friend jack diamond phillips he put his arms around me and he said no artemis Mm -hmm. don't do it Mm -hmm. jack's gone now too he's an amazing person but um he drove me around to all the hospitals so that i could see everybody and i went in to see leon and they said he's in icu you can't see him i said "Oh, oh yes i can you know and i just started walking down here and a nurse ran up and started to grab me and I heard a doctor say he was in the plane crash let him go and I walked into Leon's room and he had every machine you could imagine hooked up to him his eyes were like glassy and just bugging out of his head his he had swelled up he was all swelled and uh he should not have lived and I I just I just looked at him and I said, "Are you in there, man?" Because he couldn't talk. And I said, "Are you in there, dude?" And he just was like, you "Nodding," know, he just staring. a little bit of a nod. Yeah. And so, you know, he was letting me know that that he he was in there, even though he couldn't talk or move or anything. So, all, that's all I needed was to see that he was actually still yeah. cognizant. So, and I knew he'd make it. So then I went back to my room and. Ended up going home and, um, there was funerals down in Florida for Ronnie. Um, I couldn't go to, I was still injured and I couldn't go to the funerals, but, um, Linda Blair, that was a good friend of the band that she was in the exorcist. Yeah. 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 She was Reagan. Right. So she, she was down there. She got busted for Coke (laughs) and, um, they banned her from Florida for like (laughs) five years or something. But, um
0: there was basically, you guys knew at this point in time, the band is done. I mean, there's no continuing.
1: Well, when you lose a lead singer like Ronnie Van Zant, So I moved, you know, eventually I ended up in Jerusalem, Israel. Right. And I'm studying Old Testament over there. And I get a call from Gary and Alan and they say, man, it's been 10 years and uh, we're going to put the band back together. And I'd had a couple of different little bands that I played just to keep my chops up and see if I could, you know, play, which, you know, I always could. I put a band together called Studebaker Hawk Mm -hmm. and, and, you know, I was kicking it again, but um, Gary and Alan called me and said, we're going to put together the tribute tour. We're going to do a hundred cities. We're going to start with Charlie Daniels. We're going to go all over the place. You know, you can raise money for all of your causes and everything. And I said, well, cool. So I came back to America. We rehearsed. Went out on the tribute tour. it was great. who sang? Johnny van Zant Oh Johnny came I got you Johnny and he came up and uh, and everything was looking good until cocaine and alcohol creeped back into the scene. So everybody in the band and I mean everybody massive gluttonous overconsumption of cocaine. massive over gluttonous consumption of alcohol champagne. Cause you know, we were making big bucks, We're making big bucks. So everybody champagne and cocaine for all. And I'm still smoking my little weed, you know, and keeping myself together for the shows. And uh, I eventually got sick of it. And in Toronto, Canada, I threw a fit. Mm -hmm. I threw bottles of Ed King's Puy Fusay through plate glass windows. Mm -hmm. I destroyed our dressing room. I tore it up. I threw shit. I yelled, screamed, jumped up and down. I didn't hit anybody, almost. But uh, it was, I said, guys, I'm the drummer of the real Leonard Skynyard, and I don't want to be in something less. And I said, this is sucking. You guys think you're really good, you're not. There's too much coke, too much alcohol you know, this is not the band that I want to be in. You got all your wives out here. You guys are fighting every night. And why are you fighting? Because of the cocaine. You're all in bad moods all the time. You stay up all night talking about how great you are, chain smoking cigarettes, you know, and, and I'm done. Mm-hmm. And I was hoping that that would snap everybody back to reality and everybody go, look, you can do whatever you want when you're home. You can do whatever you want on your own time. But when we're on that stage, everybody must be present. And that's what I was hoping for. And that's what I told them when I was leaving. I said, man, you know, maybe, maybe we can pull this out. I'm going back to Florida. And uh, so I got back to Florida and they went deeper. They got another drummer. They they went through 15, Mm -hmm. 16 drummers after I left, Mm -hmm. you know, and they went deeper and deeper into this thing where they were just snorting giant lines of cocaine. Now, I've done cocaine. Mm-hmm. I know what cocaine is. Cocaine is a lot of fun. It's great for about 15
0: minutes. <laughs> Isn't know, that the truth, right? Then it's
1: chasing the dragon, right? <laughs> exactly. You know. So, so I'm, I'm no angel, but uh, I, I knew what it was, and I knew what it affected. I knew how it affected mm. people. And so I am totally anti-cocaine. Yeah, I am right. totally anti, you know, fentanyl, all this stuff that these kids are dying on now, Mm. you know, the opioids and everything I do. I do all kinds of stuff all over the country for opioid abuse. Right. Last question for you, because they're telling me we got to go
0: do VIP. Uh, Through all all of this, what are your favorite uh, Skinner songs to play
1: live to this day? Well, Chris, now they're all sentimental. Mm. I, you know, now every single song, has a meaning to me because it has a meaning to the fans. And I sit and listen to the fans for hours telling me where they were when the plane crashed, yeah. how the music affected their lives, guys that were in prison, Simple Man got me through. Bikers, a lot of, you know, I ride a lot of bikers, bury their friends to Freebird. Mm. So, you know, I I used to have my favorites. Now I love them all. But if I had to pick a one song that is my favorite to play. And, and that, that I, it's Saturday Night Special, hmm. you know, because that song meant so much to me, and it was in that Burt Reynolds movie, and I thought it was going to be a, like a another Stroker Ace or some Burt <laughs> Reynolds movie that was like funny, <laughs> right. right? But but the Longest Yard that yeah. was a serious, a serious movie, movie. Yeah. about integrity, strength, and and the the, the glory, you know, of of uh, victory and the agony of defeat, mm. and that, that I was really proud to be in that movie. And the first time I ever saw that that, that movie, uh, I was in a theater, the Carolina Theater in Spartanburg, South Carolina, on a uh, afternoon matinee. There was like four people in the whole place, and me sitting dead in the middle. <laughs> and Saturday Night Special came on, man, and I yelled, "Woohoo!" You know, and that's I, me. Yeah, I'm looking <laughs> like Charles Manson, you know, and people are going, "Like, there's some dude um, in there yelling at the screen." Um, <laughs> well, dude, so that would that would be it. But I, I love them all. Uh, am I losing? Is a great song that I love playing because it's about Bob Burns. Mm. Because Ronnie loved Bob. And he was sorry that Bob had the problems that he did and we had to lose Bob. And I think that Bob Burns would have eventually come back because a lot of the Southern rock bands had two drummers. Mm-hmm. You know, all the yeah, brothers, sure. Charlie Daniels. The Doobie Brothers, yeah. Doobie Brothers. A lot of the bands out there. Mm-hmm. So I thought Bob would eventually come back to the band. It didn't happen because it might have happened, but we, we crashed the plane. Right, Ronnie right. was killed. And the rest you know is history
0: well dude you're a piece of rock and roll history and i really appreciate it. i'm looking forward to
1: jam with you tonight man yeah chris we're gonna jam tonight Absolutely. people are gonna love it and well, thank it's, you brother. it's great meeting you man thank you for the uh interview i i appreciate all the questions and uh you know you, you'll have my telephone number for the rest of our lives yes, we're sir. friends call me anytime thank you thank you brother